0: This week I enjoyed another great deep conversation with Dr. Alan Tapper, who's a philosopher. He has lectured at Curtin Uni, he has informed policy, and he's also been rather instrumental in getting philosophy taught into schools. This is another great deep journey through philosophy, really starting during the age of enlightenment, when we first started to become more rational and then coming out of that. So there's a bit of philosophy history in there as well. This is a really great and deep conversation that goes into lots of great places. So enjoy, Alan. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Alan Tapper. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryn. So um, you teach philosophy at Curtin
1: University. No. 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 no, all right, I no. got that wrong straight <laughs> out of the bat, didn't well, I? Well, to start with, I'm retired. Yes. Um, but uh, although I'm still associated with Curtin right. University, I'm, my work at Curtin University was in public policy research. Yes. Which is not philosophy. Yeah. Okay. So my career in philosophy, I had a career in philosophy. Yeah. Which You're now um, answering my second question, yeah, okay, <laughs> which yeah. is tell me about well, your career in philosophy. Okay, course. so I had a career in philosophy which was... Um, originated at the University of Western Australia Mm. where I studied history and philosophy Mm. and then I taught there for two or three years and then I I moved to Edith Cowan University when they set up a philosophy program in 1993 and that lasted till 2006 and they called an end to the philosophy program, um, even though it was going very well. Mm. Um, And so I had to start again, I suppose. And luckily I was able to transfer to Curtin University where I did work in a Mm. philosophy and ethics center with um, my colleague, Stefan Millett. Um, and then when my work with Stefan ended I was luckily transferred to the John Curtin Institute of Public Policy. Mm. Um, So I've had two careers you could say, well possibly three. Um, One is standard philosophy teaching, Mm -hmm. Um, the other one is uh, the second one is the research in public policy and uh, The third one, which is my kind of most, um, I still think my most basic interest is in the history of ideas, Mm. and especially in the 18th century, and especially in the British 18th century. Mm. So I think of that as like my interest in the Enlightenment. Mm. So I've got those three things. And originally I started off to become a scholar, historian, teaching and researching the 18th century Mm. in Ottoman. What what drew you uh, to that? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. But as it turned out, um, there was just no way of getting a job. So by the end of my PhD, I was extremely well qualified for nothing. For nothing. (laughs) for a non-existent career. Yes. So then I had to. Um, I, I, I guess I was unusual in the sense that um, philosophy was something I had to do in order to have a career. Right. And there were there were few there were few um, openings, but I managed to get one at UWA for a while, and then one at Curtin. Uh, sorry, at Edith Cowan University. When when Edith Cowan University became a university, they said, well. If, couple of things you have to have and one of them is philosophy right and so i got the job the first job there and i was the last person to to leave i guess right but it was a good it was good while it lasted yeah <laughs> um so yeah um my I, I guess i could say i have three basic sorts of interests hmm. and the the, the Enlightenment is probably my first interest. I wrote my PhD on Joseph Priestley, mm. who probably is a name that people would know, mm. but probably best known for as, a, as, a, as one of the great chemists mm. and a discoverer of oxygen, though Within the framework in which he was working, he didn't call it oxygen. It was called oxygen by his contemporary Lavoisier. Hmm. Anyway, I'm not—I don't claim to be a historian of science, but I was able to write a PhD on Priestley's other um, interests, and he was a man of many, many interests. Hmm. So that's—I've um, continued writing and thinking about. The Enlightenment and Priestley, and um, I think in the in the sense of the way in which we live in the Enlightenment world still. Yes. And I, what I mean by that is that science is still central to our life. Um, the great technological and industrial and um, uh, um, economic. Transformation that took place in the 18th century that Mm. came from the Enlightenment. Mm. Um, So I've I've, I've still, I I still, I think we still live in the Enlightenment world, Mm. even though we rebel against it in various ways. Mm. So what, what is it that
0: illuminates you around this about about the Enlightenment
1: period? Um, it's uh, well. If you take Priestley as an example, it, it was a time, and this is true of practically all the great figures in that period. And mm. um, they didn't have; they weren't specialists. Yeah. They didn't have specialized interests. They weren't focused on just one field. Um, practically all of them had multiple interests. Right. And. Um, Yes, and then there's a sense that um, there's there's two things I think you could say in addition to it, maybe three. Um, One is that um, the enlightenment was in the first place it was a challenge to religious superstition, Mm. Um, so it was kind of tough-minded in that way. Um, Second was that. uh, it was like the discovery of the universe and the central figure was Newton Mm. Um, and what Newton did um, astonished everybody everybody since in the post Newtonian period Mm. think of him as the figure who unified our understanding of the physical world so that's Um, and the the understanding of the world was very different from what it had been in previous Mm. centuries. Um, The third thing though I think about the Enlightenment, and this is less familiar, is that um, it uh, it tried to create an understanding of human beings as social beings. Right. And this is not what people generally think. They think of the Enlightenment as individualistic. Yes. Um, and kind of like uh, the isolated, rational individual working things out for themselves. Yeah, it wasn't really like that at all. Um, <clears throat> the very the first thing that the, 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 the one of the main impulses behind the Enlightenment was that the 16th and 17th centuries mm-hmm. had been periods of warfare. Yeah. Between. Protestant and Catholic primarily, but, mm. but even, um, it, even within subdivisions of, of the, of that big division. And it was a pretty terrible period. So the reaction against that was to say, let's rebuild our idea of um, human nature. Right. Um, let's rethink all this and get an understanding of human beings as social. And sociable, and these, and so the one of the first things that happened in the Enlightenment. Well, uh, to take two examples, one was the invention of the stock exchange, mm. where people could mix. Voltaire said this: people could mix regardless of their religious beliefs yeah and in, engage in exchange and and commerce mm. and trade. Um, but. Uh, the other thing that was invented in the early Enlightenment was the coffee shop. Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, coffee shops played a huge part in the 18th century. They were, mm. and they were th- they were in many ways an alternative to the pub, mm. or to the aristocratic um, salon. Oh. They were places where anyone could meet. They yeah. could, You could go and read the newspaper. Because at that time we had, like you said,
0: these. Salons, which were like people's front rooms, yeah, that that's people right. People would yeah. come together, and you'd have Isn't salonaires, they were, yeah, typically female,
1: weren't they? They were led by women, yeah. yeah, and especially in France, yeah. So there's a bit of a difference between France and Britain. Mm. In Britain, the um, the Enlightenment, the enlightened um, thinkers met in coffee shops or clubs. Whereas in France, they met because it was more aristocratic. They met in salons, hmm. and so there was a much more uh, of an emphasis on performance. Right, you had to look your best, you had to speak your best. Ah, right. Um, it wasn't. So quite performative. Of, it was very performative, yeah. Yes. And that's what Rousseau, in particular, rebelled against, hmm. um, like a kind of false sociability. Yeah. Um, but Scotland and England and not just London, but the central, the Midlands were centres of Enlightenment All right. um, science and Priestley was part of that Midlands group. He was from Yorkshire and the group that they um, that he belonged to was called the Lunar Society. Right. Uh, they met on the night of the full moon so that they could go back to their own cities Without fear of highwaymen, <laughs> right. <That's quite laughs> but um, Gra- Charles Darwin's grandfather was a key figure in that, and there's a um, uh, Watt, the inventor of the steam engine, Bolton, mm. the creator of the first great factory, um, were parts of, were members of the Lunar Society. Mm. Um, so that's the that's the thing that's the world that I found fine, fascinating. Mm, particularly, this um, and they can where they can mix and talk and swap ideas and then, um, think through experiments.
0: Yeah, particularly this idea of building a level of
1: sociability yeah. and things, making it um, like a normal practice to um, to talk things through together, mm. and not just specialised fields, but. Um,
0: is that so a, With the, a huge crossover of so, images. then you
1: can explore
0: not just a topic in depth, but then mm. the connection between, between the topics. Them, that's right, yeah. So you can start to see the yeah. patterns and yes, the similarities yeah. and the consistency. That, that's right,
1: yeah. That's where um, that's the kind of the philosophical level. Mm. Um, what are the overriding general um, understandings lying behind what we're doing? Mm. So.
0: How how has um, elements and features of that period of time? Mm. What would we look, What would we see and feel mm. today mm. that started then? Mm. Mm.
1: Well, I think it's true that we don't live in that same world um, because uh, because we are more specialised. I was going to say yeah yeah. we are more specialized and that's true in the academic world Hmm. but it's true in um, in 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 any in any professional business or Hmm. or or trade people people um, get better at doing specific this is what Adam Smith said this isn't an enlightenment idea, the division of labour, the development of specialisation. That is or isn't? It is. It was was discovered, as it were, by um, Smith as one way in which modern economies will um, progress. Hmm. And Smith was right in saying that it has a downside, namely that you become better and better at less and less. Hmm. Um, And then you don't have the potential for meeting and talking mm. that um, the Enlightenment in people, a narrow s- section of society in the 18th century invented, I think. Yes. Nevertheless, we still live in the same world. We live in a world where technology is um, you know, all around us, yeah. um, we embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, and behind that lies um, masses and masses of science. Mm. Mm. And certainly when you were talking about
0: you know, um, people having a lot of different interests, mm. that was the first thing that, as I was listening to you, came up for me, I was, because I find, well, it's plain to see that w- we value experts. Mm an expert opinion of Mm. somebody who's come Mm. into a very narrow field, Mm. but I'm still struggling to work out what the term is for an expert that
1: Mm. can see patterns across, because expert seems to Mm. be that deeper level. Mm. Yeah, well, there is is that question. I have that question myself. Mm. Um, So philosophy is the most general of subjects. Mm. Uh, When... The first philosophy lecture, I went to the professor of the time, Selwyn Grave, who became my supervisor later on. Mm. He said that that philosophy is the most general of subjects. Um, but philosophy, it's both um, stronger than ever before yeah. and weaker than ever before. How, how do you explain that? So um, it's weaker in the sense that it's... Presence in the university is very small. Right. Um, and it's not universally um, valued. Hmm. So um, it used to be more valued in in the academic world. Yeah. Know, it's a kind of like the highest. Um, when you say you used, used to be, how well, far back? 50 years or yeah. so, yeah. Um, <clears throat> But um, nowadays most students will go through university and perhaps never even hear of philosophy, or they might, they might have an introduction to ethics, mm. that would be the closest thing. And some students wa- might have an introduction to critical thinking. Mm. They are the two sort of subjects that philosophy can offer to yeah. the general student. But most students won't um, take such courses.: Yeah. And so the, the, um, the demand for philosophy at university is, is like quite small. but an astonishing, in the last 50 years that I'm talking about a downward trend in, in the university, but there's been an upward trend in, in the wider society. right um, So if you go online, let's say you go to YouTube, yeah, and you type in philosophy, mm. you'll get endless amounts of stuff. yeah if you want to follow philosophy on the Internet. On blogs and things there's a lot of very, very good um, philosophy available for free to anyone mm. and likewise in the bookshops um, fifty years ago there wouldn't have been much in the way of books in in bookshops, philosophy books mm. and now there is so it's very curious the way it's um, mm. evolved
0: so if somebody was if somebody's listened to that yeah
1: what what sort of Blogs would would be looking up? what's the name um, of some of the authors that. We're well, up? Um, the one that I follow on a regular basis is called Electric Agora. Yeah, and it's run by a, a guy in um, Missouri. I think it's run right. um, University of Missouri, and it has you know maybe ten authors who contribute to it, and they talk about things ranging from basic um, philosophical questions through to questions of the day Mm. and and they interview people and so on right so that's that's a uh, a sort of um, one place that people could go to find um, you know up-to-date contemporary discussions of issues Mm. from a philosophical perspective yeah But, Mm. but there's a lot of that
0: yeah so you were saying before that philosophy
1: used to be, mm. um, yeah, one of the. It was the highest. It was regarded as amongst the highest of the great disciplines, mm. historical disciplines, and it, and people looked up to, um, let's say Oxford, or Harvard, mm. or other places as great centres of mm. philosophy, and. In a way, we no longer look up to particular places like that, mm. and um, philosophy in the academic world is more, um, perhaps, democratic. Mm. Um, it's much more, there are a lot of people doing philosophy. Um, <clears throat> there is a serious problem with academic philosophy, and that is that m- most of it has now become highly specialised. So we've um, We've all gone narrow. <laughs> yeah, super narrow. Yeah, yeah, it's become super narrow, and uh, it's unreadable. Yeah, um, a lot of it's unreadable because it's, you know, it's, it's it's grappling with small questions or big ones, but in lots of yeah. little um, points. Hmm. Um, and so, for someone coming looking at philosophy, uh, academic philosophy, most of it wouldn't be of much value to them. Right. You want to start somewhere else. Because the language is impenetrable. Yeah, exactly. Mm. The ideas are uh, tec- so fine. Tec- technical and, yeah. uh, and you'd, you'd, you'd struggle to know what, the, what, what
0: they were talking about. Mm. And, it, and would the criticism be fair that, as it, with these fine arguments, are they gone past the point of Possibly, yeah. providing yeah. useful return to, yeah. to society, mm. rather well, than one, <laughs> one or two or three <laughs> men or yeah. women's pursuit of yeah. going somewhere by themselves.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to be too categorical about that, but yeah, it's yeah. generally accepted that philosophy has become too narrow, Yeah, um, and yet it should be a broadening subject. Um, and it should be one, a subject that engages with big, difficult questions. Mm. Um, so, uh, and, and you need people to be doing the specialised work as well. Yeah. Uh, that's all important. But without losing sight of the big picture.
2: Mm.
0: And that just seems to be something that, with the pursuit of expert mm. and expertise, yeah. Yeah. that we have... It's hard to avoid yeah mm. let go of what has or what 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 are some of the things that have contributed to the the demise of um, philosophy
1: standing would you say um, as well as yeah so we've done the expertise yeah, yeah. Uh, well there's another one which is that we live in a world um, dominated by science mm. which is good um, which is but a product of the 18th century. Yeah, it's true. a product of the 18th century, right? Um, but the downside of that is that um, we assume that all questions are empirical questions. Hmm. And therefore the um, empirical method, the scientific method, yeah. uh, the experimental method, will have an answer to the question if the question is meaningful. Right. Well, we may not know the answer yet, and we may not have worked out how to do the experiments, but um, That that method that assumption leaves no room for philosophy because it's not the mm. experimental subject It's not an empirical subject. Mm. It's a conceptual subject. Mm. Um, so yes, uh, I think that um, so is it is it almost that we are
0: to use a metaphor or analogy trying to
1: hit a screw in with a mm-hmm. hammer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we've got the wrong tool. That's right, yeah. Um, except we don't know what the other tools are. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are two sorts of tools. One is the experimental empirical one. Yeah, right. This is where we
0: have the null hypothesis and the null hypothesis yeah, the, and we That's right, yeah. We go we go and right. measure, yeah, stuff, going, and measure stuff, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we have we, stuff. We, we test things out.
1: Um, yeah. and, and, and a fair bit of that involves quite a bit of theorising as well. Mm. Um, but the pl- philosophy is not located in that area. It's mm. over here. Mm. It uses a different set of tools, and those tools are um, kind of armchair tools so more discursive. So they're discursive. They're conceptual, exploratory, exploratory, but they're exploratory in the in the at the level of ideas and yeah. how, how our different concepts and our different ideas fit together. Mm. That's wh- that's what it means to say it's the most general subject. Mm. It's the most general because it focuses on uh, very general concepts. And I would imagine. Within the scientific
0: framework, we are looking f- to reinforce expected outcomes.
1: Uh, not necessarily. Well, no. uh, I, I guess uh, uh, you, yes, have yes no. uh-huh, yeah. you have an idea of where you want. You have an idea of where you want to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Um, I was probably I was probably about to put my more um, where we've got to with sales and marketing in a scientific world where. Mm. I try to sell you predictable mm. out. I sell you predictable outcomes, which is mm. the basis of most sales and marketing that mm. we have today. Yeah. Whereas um, I imagine the tools, like you say, of, of, of philosophy, mm. are more not just exploratory but also open to all mm. possibilities mm-hmm. and all yep. eventualities yep. and pathways. Mm. Therefore, trying to engage somebody now. In, well, let's sit down and have a chat about this, and and, you know, set against, you know, it's certainly set in a a business context. Is well, no, we need a meeting. What's the point of the meeting? Mm. What's going to be the outcome Mm. of the meeting? Mm. And and to be able and sit there and say, I don't know, Mm. we'll find out, Mm. just doesn't fly, Mm. really. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Well, I'll. I don't have any experience in business, so I can't yeah. comment on it from that yeah. point of view, right? Um, but um, from the point of view of science, yes. I mean, Thomas Kern was right, I suppose, in saying that science progresses by big shifts. Mm. And in the, between the big shifts, there is uh, what, what he called normal science, mm. where you, you assume the big background and then you, you focus on filling out the, 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 the details mm. um, but what makes science so astonishing is that um, people were able to make those to ask those big questions and to open their mind to the possibilities that no one had thought of before mm. so um, great science is done by um, by huge acts of imagination Mm. Um, and then I guess quite often that those um, leaps lead nowhere Mm. but every so often they lead somewhere incredible yes Mm, that sort of so just thinking that one through
0: surely you would have been in some sort of discourse with others or self mm. to have come up with that big idea, two of them pursued yeah. it, yeah, so you there's yeah. almost yeah. I can see almost that like the mm. relationship between wrestling with the big ideas of philosophy that then mm. spawn
1: more mm-hmm. focused mm. Mm. yeah um yeah, behind every great scientist there is other great scientists. That's what Newton said. Yeah. That yeah, he stands <laughs> yes. on, on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Um, so everything has a, a history that leads up mm. to. There's a progression. Progression, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the same is true for Darwin. Mm. But on the other hand, the um, the, as Huxley said about Darwin, um, he, uh wh- why why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you know, after it's been thought, then it looks a whole lot Mm. clearer than it was beforehand.
0: Mm. So I'm getting the impression then we are now in an environment where we have over we've now almost become over-focused as experts Mm. in quite narrow fields, whether it's philosophy Mm. Or wider science, um, and almost put that bigger armchair exploratory mm. conversations to one side. Would that be fair? Uh,
1: not quite fair, no. Um, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, new discoveries happen all the time. Yes. Um, and often they're, you know, things that could not have been predicted. Mm. I mean, we uh, we in the last 20 years, I've lived through the decoding of the human genome. Mm. Um, and that uh, that that is revolutionising how we understand um, the biological world. Yeah. So that's kind of like um, like uh, the Darwinian revolution. Mm. And it's not just the human genome, but all genomes. So this vaccine that we've now discovered within have been able to create within, uh, people said before the virus that uh, before we, we had the virus that it would take five years to find a vaccine and it took, whatever over nine months. Mm. Um, and that's because we ha- we had, we could, we've already decoded the genome and then we can decode the genome of the virus mm. and then work out how to um, create a vaccine for it. Right. And that's going to be revo- revolutionary because um, the uh, same techniques can be used on other viruses. Mm. Um, mm. So these things are happening all, all around us. Yeah, I guess
0: my sort of curiosity is, it strikes me that you know, the advent of science is mm. far eclipsed that of the mm. philosophy and being more
1: mm. generally of course at what point did mm. we switch from one yeah. to another yeah so in the 18th century uh, science was called natural philosophy
2: mm.
1: and mm. Uh, and newton's book was the mathematical principles of natural philosophy um, and the word uh, and the word science wasn't invented until the 18th twenties. Right. But yeah, I guess there's not any clear. The the point where the two things come together is in the Mm. philosophy of science. Yeah. Um, So we still have um, the philosophy of science as a bridge between philosophy and science. The philosophy of science being an attempt to account for uh, what what we are doing in science, and what are the implications of the scientific worldview. And some scientists uh, say that um, the philosophy of science is a completely worthless subject and has never added anything to our understanding. But (laughs) (laughs) but that's a a kind of um, fairly uh, um, narrow I'm trying to think who said that. I think it was Feynman, the um, great physicist. Yeah. Um, but if you think about, uh, other scientists are much more receptive to philosophy mm-hmm. as a discipline. They just don't want philosophers to tell them what they're gonna find when they examine the real world. Right. Because philosophy is more about the, um, the thought processes behind the experimental work. Yeah. So where,
0: where's the delineation between that and psychology then? Right. Um, it's one of the things I'm mm, finding interesting. Yeah. I, and I've, I've started to read a little bit about this in, in a couple of books that a former podcast guest has written. And so the idea of the history of ideas mm. I'm finding particularly Mm. interesting at the moment because I guess through the internet Mm. I can now access and listen to so many different people Mm. and I guess what I'm trying to orientate myself against is um, what things are genuinely new Mm. and ideas and what what ideas have been bubbling around but they've just got a new face on them, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, in the case of psychology, uh, you can go back to the mid-19th century, Mm. and there really wasn't any distinction between philosophy and psychology. Mm. Um, The philosophy of mind was the, um, Mm. was what psychology was then. Yeah. And um, so, It was natural that psychology would break away from philosophy. I think the last great person that combined philosophy and psychology was William James. Right. But um, it's natural that it should break away, that it should become experimental. And then it um, became more mathematical and it it relied heavily upon statistics. Mm. And um, as I well know, yeah, as everyone <laughs> <knew>. from studying <laughs> he, he psychology. psychology had yes. suddenly found they the were university.
2: learning statistics, right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I was good at maths in the first yeah. place. Yeah. I thought I was getting away from logic. Yeah. But no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, there's still the big question: Well, what, what, um, what is our understanding of the mind mm. after you've done all of the experimental work? Um, and that uh, that. Um, that, that comes, comes through at different levels. Mm. Um, amongst philosophers, the, I suppose the question has always been about the nature of consciousness. Mm. <clears throat> so um, there are those who think that um, uh, the empirical approach to consciousness actually hasn't made any progress. Hmm. Um, there are those who think the opposite that um, the only way to make progress is to give an account of the neurophysiology of the brain right um, and there's a f- fair few people who, who don't who would like to find some middle ground between these two things but don't quite know how to work it out yeah um, so it's an ongoing it's a serious ongoing problem within philosophy yeah in which psychologists and philosophers are working side by side Mm. neuroscience psychology and philosophy yeah where the role of philosophy is to help frame the questions yes uh, and to keep the questions open so that you can't just assume that the neuro uh, physiological answer is the whole story Mm. Um, it may be but it's debatable Mm. Um, then there's a whole lot of uh, interesting work about which um, this is not my particular field, but a whole lot of interesting work about the nature of emotions. Hmm. So, and the the examination of emotions goes back to the 18th century. Um, uh, So David Hume and Adam Smith, they were both um, moral psychologists. Um, They tried to give an account of the Basics of uh, human emotions. Mm. And to summarize it, basically uh, Hume thought that um, the fundamental emotion was sympathy. Right. Um, And so people can engage sociably through their capacity for sympathizing Mm. with the other person. Um, Adam Smith said that there were two fundamentals. One was sympathy, but the other was resentment. And um, mm. this, yeah, this, this debate is actually still going on, I think. Um, mm. the, the resentment viewpoint is not um, someone who's uh, perpetually angry at the world or at oh. other people. It's that you need to have something like resentment in order to provide yourself with self-defense. Yes. You need to have it for your family. Mhm to the protective attitude to to your children Mm. Um, and you 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 will you will you will feel the same feelings um, Mm. when you think about your country or your community Um, and so sympathy by itself won't do the whole job that's what um, uh, Smith claimed yeah and resentment is connected to your sense of justice Mm. So that's making a transition from the psychological to the moral. Mm. Um, Whereas if you go from, if you start from a sympathy story of human nature, then you progress to a benevolent um, ethics. Mm. Um, And the question then is, well, uh, can you get the whole of ethics out of that, that, that that psychological origin in, in sympathy. Mm. Um, I'm with the, I'm, So Adam Smith, although he's a great uh, economist, mm. the first book he wrote was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Right. Um, <laughs> right. This is 1751, I think. Mm. And he was a close friend of Smith's. Right. So this is the Enlightenment, right, at the friendship yeah. level. Um, they both came from. Uh, not not from Edinburgh but from the area around Edinburgh Hmm. and their careers overlapped and um, they corresponded um, but they came to quite different different views Hmm. Um, and uh, anyway that's that's the philosophy of um, emotions Hmm. how emotions are part of the natural expression of who we are, but also of how we behave in relation, in Mm. our relationships with other people. Mm. And I think, um, personally I think that um, the level of discussion of that issue in the 18th century was extremely high, Mm. and yet it was non-experimental, it was like, it was philosophical it was discursive
0: hm where do we see that now
1: where do we see that discussion yeah uh, okay now. well it, we we can see it in i think you can see it in uh quite a lot of authors hmm. um there's a nice book called Ag- against empathy hmm. by a leading psychologist and his his point is really Lots of ways in which we need to switch off empathy. Mm. If you're an ambulance driver, for example, then you don't want to be empathetic. Mm. You want to do your job. Um, or a police officer. Yeah. Um, or or a lawyer, for example, who gets too caught up in the interest of the client, Yes. too close to the client. And that's natural. Sympathy is, you know, it's natural to feel sympathetic to someone who you feel is, has had bad luck or whatever. Mm. But it isn't actually always very helpful. No. So you have to learn to, we all in our work have to learn to um, control our, likewise on, in, in the reverse, you don't want to become a person who is like prone to anger, because that's not very helpful yeah, either. Overly prone, yeah, yeah. yeah, overly prone. Yeah, overly prone, yeah. Um, So I think there are lots of places where you can see it, but this book by, uh, it's called Against Empathy, Anyway, I can't remember, Paul Bloom, I think that's the name, Mm. is a good example of someone... Who's furthering that discussion. Yeah, furthering that discussion, yeah, that's Mm. right.
0: Mm. I guess, um, even with the ground that we've covered in the discussion so far, Um, which has been particularly interesting how because a part of your work's been informing policy Mm. so how is that level of thinking and understanding of how we've got to where we've got to then woven into actual policy making Mm. decisions Mm. It's probably moving tracks slightly, but
1: no, yeah, <coughs> it's, it's true that that's been another th- um, thread in my career, like mm. I said at the start. But um, it's a hard it's hard to answer um, in in to put it in very general terms. Um, okay, well, let me have a go um yeah so <laughs> we'll get, let's go back to the post-war world yes world war Two. yeah um where uh clearly the uh the western liberal countries had won that war yeah and they then had the um the power to frame the post-war world mm. um, so liberal democratic values, the question is, what does that mean? Um, and what are we offering, let's say, in the reconstruction of Germany or of Japan? No. These questions are still very much an issue for us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in some ways, you could say the Anglo-Saxon tradition um, was what we were passing on. The Anglo-Saxon tradition of the Enlightenment which didn't go as far as the French Revolution, um, but it had replaced an aristocratic world and replaced a Christian world, a Christian-dominated yes. world. Um, <clears throat> so, what, in broad terms, what happened? I think in that period after the war was there was a there was about twenty years of kind of natural economic progress. Mm. Um, which raised Germany and Japan and America into leading countries mm. in the world. Um, and then the question was whether um, whether societies mm. needed to go further than just economic um, prosperity or ri- yeah. rising levels of economic prosperity. Mm. Um, and so that raised the in America, in particular, all the questions of civil rights. Mm. But in Europe, it raised the question, I think, more of the welfare state. Right. And the formation of the welfare state. So, the formation of the welfare state through social democratic parties mm. was like the next big project. And for. And you could see how
0: the impetus for two would be different. Yeah. Mm. In America, you've mm. still got you know quite a young country mm-hmm. that's not long mm. been dealing with slavery and things mm. like that. Yep, so yeah, civil mm. rights is a mm. is more of a focus. Whereas mm. you've got these very older, established mm-hmm. countries in, Yo- in Europe mm. where okay, we haven't had slavery like we've had mm. over in America, mm. but we have, yeah, different people. That, on, on different steps of the economic mm. ladder
1: yep so so yeah so both of those were kind of social justice mm. movements um,
0: and, and that and that sort of fits in with that sort of yeah 20 years later in the 60s yeah that's right yeah mm.
1: um, and lots of kind of um, other liberation type movements mm. Um The question that was then left was, um, is that essentially what we, on a philosophical level, is that the the primary thing that modern society should be aiming for, that is social justice? And uh, amongst philosophers the key figure in in that discussion was um, um, American John Rawls Mm. um, who wrote a book called A Theory of Justice and the argument of it was that um, uh, justice means um, the uh, protection and um, prioritizing those who are the least well-off in modern societies. Right. Um, and he, his argument for it was, uh, imagine that you don't know where your place in society is going to be. Mm. Um, if, you, if you think that way, then you would see that it's a desirable thing that society should be structured in such a way that people at the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum are, are, are favored. Hmm. And therefore, you need some redistribution. So you say, favoured as it looked after. Yeah, looked after. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you therefore need some redistribution from the well off to the least well off. Hmm. Um, that was Rawls's book was about that big. Um, right. But it, it, had, an but enormous, <laughs> yeah, it had a in summary. It had. It actually did have a summary, roughly like that. Um, right. And um, uh, had enormous impact. I doubt doubt that many people read the whole thing Mm. but the concept um, that the function of the state is to redistribute to the least Mm. well-off took hold and um, some people thought it didn't go far enough but many people thought well that's the rationale for civil rights that's the rationale for the welfare state Mm. Um, and then the challenge to that came from in part from con- economists and in part from other philosophers who, who had a different account of justice. And that account was that if an exchange, voluntary exchange between people, between um, consenting adults, as it were, in the economic sphere, the outcome of that could be that you become very rich and I become rather poor, mm. right? We've, we've both entered into the marketplace. Yes. Um, and you have not done any wrong to me, you've not disadvantaged me, but Mm. the outcome is one does well and the other does less well. Mm. Therefore, um, inequality is morally neutral, Mm. that sort of inequality. Um, And then there's a second layer of argument on top of that, which is that if we have a competing economy, a competitive economy um, of that sort, then uh, we will all benefit even though you'll benefit more than i do Hmm. right i'm better off than i would have been you are much better off than you would have been Hmm. Uh, this was the argument put by uh, robert nozick who was a contemporary of Rawls, yeah and they were actually in the same corridor at um, harvard and so this generated a debate which um, um which amongst Philosophers um, ran for quite some time uh, because they're two competing models of how society should be organised. Yeah. Um, One's with a sense of justice. Yeah. One's. One's the sense of social justice, and the other is the sense of um, neutrality. Well, just yeah, justice as voluntary transactions, (coughs) mm. voluntary exchanges. and then there's, a ho- then there's a whole other set of questions, which is, well, how do you measure inequality? Yeah. Um, and r- the, the natural thing to think is that you, that you measure it by income or wealth. Yeah. In other words, it's a purely um, economic um, measurement. Mm. But, of course, it doesn't need to be. Um, mm. People could be disadvantaged because you know they're quite well off economically, but they suffer from social discrimination in some way or other. Hmm. Um, but most, for the most part, in the field of um, social policy research, probably the central question is the measurement of inequality, hmm. and that's where I my work was located in that. Um, so. In, in, you can ask people, um, do you think Australia is a egalitarian society? Um, we generally think we are democratic and egalitarian. Mm. And then you push a bit harder, so what does that mean? Is there much inequality between people at the top and the bottom? Mm. And at that point people will divide because some will say, well of course, I mean, it's a very unequal society mm. in that sense. Um, and so it's not necessarily what you initially said.
0: Yeah. So, uh, when people say, you know, it's mm. quite an important Yeah, yeah, society. that's right, exactly. Okay, so when you we push, have a, indeed, it's not. We
1: have two images of ourselves. One yeah. is that we are like um, fair and equal, fair and equal, and democratic, and we treat um, everyone as as you find them. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this uh, other sort of discourse which says, well. Hang on a minute. There are people in our society who have a lot of money and they they live a wealthy lifestyle, and there are people down the bottom who don't <coughs> live very well. Mm. So this this is lo- like an apparent contradiction. Yeah. <coughs> but that takes you into the question of well, how did you measure that they were you know the claim? How did you justify the claim that that they are so unequal? Mm. And. <coughs> That's, that's the kind of area that my work was in with Rise. my colleagues at um, Curtin. Hmm. And broadly speaking, uh, I and my colleagues um, were of the view that actually Australia is economically pretty, um, more, much more, is considerably more equal than most other places in the modern world. Mm. In modern economies um, and so we were analyzing income inequality and wealth inequality mm. um, and basically the um, the question uh, the issue kind of slips through your fingers um, when you try to do this analysis um, but what I was doing was technically called fiscal incidence analysis. Right. And that what that means is that you count not just people's income, nor just their income after their after they've paid their income tax, but their income again, not just as an individual, but as a household. Mm. And after you've counted all taxes and all Government social expenditures, right? Expenditure on education, on health, uh, housing, whatever. Mm. Um, <coughs> so that's a much more complicated calculation, mm. and um, the outcome of making that complicate uh, that um, calculation <coughs> brings down the it, it equalizes it. It makes some, um, inequality shrink. Yes. Because um, you're now counting the cost of children. Mm. Um, now it's not to say that there isn't much um, inequality uh, after you've done that calculation, but it, 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 it reframes the issue. Mm. It's not just how much income you, you got um, in your employment or whatever. Um, <clears throat>
0: So the so if so if I'm right in understanding, it's not just oh, let me you know me comparing myself from a you know a less well-off suburb against somebody who lives in I don't know mm. Cotisloe, Peppermint, Grove. Mm. Yeah. it's the fact that we both live in Western Australia or or in mm. Australia, and then we have all this infrastructure. Mm. That's around and supports us. Yeah. That make that when you put that mm. underneath that comparison, mm. instead of it looking this big is yeah. this big sitting on top of that. That's that's broadly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: you, in, that's in, in in simplifying it. Yeah. No. That's the kind of um, coming back to the level was how how does it look? Does it look as if we're a very equal society or not a very equal society? Mm. Um, People have generally taken Sweden and the the Scandinavian societies as the most equal. Mm. Um, And then Australia kind of fits into the middle bracket Mm. and then America is more um, um, more economically polarized. Um, But if you go beyond America, you find that there's considerably more income inequality in many other places. So we're we're keeping ourselves narrowed down to the um, the, to the Western OECD countries, mm. um, but then, then you get to the question of wealth. Mm. So let's let's agree that Scandinavia is a model of income equality. Mm. That's the kind of that's as far as you can go in that direction. That's the welfare state in full operation, and so on. Mm. Um, what would you expect to find? A, about wealth inequality, wealth inequality not income inequality, you would expect to find that they'd essentially be the same thing. Mm. But that actually is not. Mm. Uh, Scandinavia is very unequal when you measure people's wealth. Right. So a, this is a very surprising thing. Um, That's pretty similar income but different. Very different, very different. Um, mm. Quite high, quite high levels of wealth inequality. Now, I don't want to go into why that might be so, but it's just, it shakes up all your assumptions. Mm. Um, So where does Australia fit in terms of wealth inequality? Um, Well, it turns out that it's right down the bottom. It's the most, one of the most equal countries in terms of wealth distribution. Right. Um, So even if you thought, well, we're in the middle rank of income inequality, we're actually clearly in the bottom rank of wealth inequality. Right. So this reinforces the idea that we're actually quite um, egalitarian. Right. Now, why that should be so is is a a question that um, I don't think has been researched properly. Um, But that that disparity between income and wealth inequalities is um, is where where I got to, or where we got to in our yeah. work. Um, the other thing to be said about wealth inequality is that it's highly correlated with age. Right. Um, so the older you get, the wealthier you you get, and it makes sense. Yeah. But people forget that. So when you see the raw figures for wealth inequality hmm. um, the the numbers um, there's a thing called the Gini coefficient which measures these and it's hmm. uh, the lowest is Australia is about 0.6 hmm. America is about 0.8 Scandinavia is up around the 0.8 mark and then there's a number of countries in the middle um, but the that's a that's a bit of an illusion because much of that high number is composed of age Mm. it's just that people when they start out in life in their 20s don't have any wealth yeah they don't have any assets yeah most people yeah Uh, now you might inherit something but Mm. that's a fairly rare and Mm. um certainly it's rare to inherit a lot in your 20s Mm. um it's more common that people inherit in their 60s when their parents die. Right. So, um, yeah. inheritance reinforces the benefits of being, oh. the wealth benefits <laughs> of being elderly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then you could say, well that's fine, that's normal, that's natural, you know, life you start out at the bottom and you work you out. Mm. But it still doesn't fit with the story that we're very unequal because wealth when you measure a cross-section of wealth you get these very high um, measurements hmm. um, so uh, I guess what I've done in my research in that field is kind of question the question hmm. question the um, assumptions about how you measure in the frame the framework the question yeah. yeah and the measurement help. yeah and then and then see what new figures come out if you, if you do the calculations again. Mm. And what I was doing was not philosophy, it had that philosophical element to it, but um, it involved a lot of calculation using ABS statistics. Mm. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't just um, uh, asking questions, it was trying to give a Measurable answer, Hmm. and the answers are quite quite surprising. Hmm. If you follow the line of thought that lies lies behind it, yeah. In what way? Um, Well, there's sort of headline figures that you get, you see in the newspaper. But if you do these, if you if you if you were to factor out age, yeah, then wealth inequality would come right down. Hmm. Um, It would come right down um to a Gini coefficient of two or two point something mm. a point two or point two something mm. um that's just that's just the te- the technical um um side of this is that things look totally different if you measure them one way as against if you measure them another mm. way and then you have to debate yeah. Well, how should we measure these things? And that comes back to framing, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it comes back to framing, that's and right. Then and that then it comes back, back to the philosophy. discussion. Yeah. Which comes back to philosophy. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I've finished doing that type of work, but um it was fun to do. Mm. Do, do you
0: see the Um, do you see areas in life of let's just say arbitrarily uh, or broadly how we we collectively do life that are lacking from us placing more of an importance on engaging with philosophy
1: currently Mm. Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, the obvious answer is um, that we, need, we now live in a world of social media mm. and of kind of instant reactiveness. Mm. And people then get all worked up by, by what someone else said. Um, uh, and they take offense over merely verbal stuff. Yes, um, when what they should or text do, stuff cause it's text yeah, it's yeah text or or Twitter yeah 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 um, or Facebook, um, and then you see these terrible pylons and, and people being vilified. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's where I think that's the obvious answer is that um, we need to cultivate and educate people in. Let's say, um, on on the one hand, a more charitable attitude mm. to people with whom you disagree, and also a kind of um, intellectual self defence. So you you, um, uh, you, you boost might boost our cognitive immune system. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you. you the, the, if if you had that attitude, then you would feel free to say things that you know other people are going to disagree with. Yes, and then you as opposed you, to be vilified. As canceled. opposed to being vilified, yeah, or cancelled, or yes, or um, shamed. Hmm. Um. And that's uh, that's philosophy has something to contribute to that hmm. because it's the most disagreeable subject,
0: right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amongst
1: philosophers, arguments and counter arguments are just the absolute norm, normal yeah, yeah. way of life. Yeah. And you can say things that. Um, Probably a bit more <laughs> constructive than law, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, law is different because it has to solve um, It has to solve <laughs> problems, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, that's what you were saying. In the case of philosophy, you're not a good philosopher if you don't argue. You're not even the beginnings of a philosopher if you don't argue. <laughs> right. The word "argue" is ambiguous, right? It means um, sometimes um, just can just to be. It means sometimes just conflict, mm. but it also means giving reasons. Mm. So the, the education system should should cultivate the idea of constructive disagreement. Yeah, with where constructive means giving reasons for what you want to say. Yeah. Um, and the, the right attitude to that is that people should be allowed to say practically anything. Mm. Um, without. But then they should be asked to, to give their reason for it. Mm. And then we can argue whether their reasons mm. are any good. And then um, in the marketplace
0: of ideas, mm. the stronger ideas will continue. That's right, you hope so.
1: And yeah. the less stronger yeah. ones will Yeah. Weak. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the theory of liberalism. Yeah. Liberal, liberal. John Stuart Mill and mm. Joseph Priestley, who was in that kind of, and Adam Smith and David Hume and and the Enlightenment figures, mm. all believed that instead of having orthodoxies, you are, um, we all live better if we are free, if we have free speech and mm. vol- voluntary associations and clubs mm. where we can argue and discuss and, mm. and try out different ideas and viewpoints and so on. Which goes back and to the coffee shops. It goes back to the coffee shop, that's mm. right. Um, but um, for for whatever reason, social media, I don't know, I, never look, I know nothing about Facebook or mm. I've hardly ever seen any Twitters, but <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's not my world, but um, yeah. it has potential, great potential, but it doesn't seem to um, work out as well as it should. And especially for young people who are more vulnerable to shame, mm. shaming. Yeah, and if you haven't
0: developed that uh, life experience of... Mm. Being able to interact in, in constructive mm. disagreement, yeah. and also being able to separate that constructive mm. disagreement to this is just, say, you know, Alan and I disagreeing doesn't mm. necessarily mean that Alan and I are not mm. no. friends That's right. anymore. Mm. 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 You separate. That we activity. can still go head to head on it, yeah. mm. and it, you know, because we're all acting in good faith, mm. so we have that level of trust yeah. and yeah. connection in that. yeah then, yeah, then we can achieve some mm. really interesting things. Mm. But if we don't even have those basics then mm. there's no way I'm going mm-hmm. to, you know, it's acting out out of, you know, mm. anger. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Venge, yeah, vengefulness. Spite.
1: So this all, I mean, philosophy has a, a particular role to play in this. Mm.
0: Um, and See, it's interesting. when mm. When you originally... When I asked you the question and I said, Mm. do you see areas where philosophy has a role? So when you put forward social media, Mm. I'll be honest, Mm. immediately I was, it wasn't so much in the actual participation of social media. I went to the bigger question of, is social media a good thing? Do we collectively have the skill set to deal Mm. with such Mm. a thing? If not, should we switch it off? Mm. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because you know, it's it's like a similar argument to smoking and and, and and drinking and things like that. Yeah.
1: If we don't have the skills to deal with it, yeah, we'd be better off going off and living in some um, social media-free way, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know if you can do that, but no. yeah. well,
0: just sending an email send an <laughs> email <laughs> yes. yeah.
1: Even emails, I find yeah, can lead to arguments. Yes, um, un, un, unconstructive arguments. Anyway, this comes to the question about schools. Yeah, um, and I, like, I think that philosophy is, is in many ways the best antidote mm. to these problems. Yeah. And um, so I was lucky enough to have an involvement in the establishing of philosophy as a school subject in WA. Hmm. Um, And it now exists as a secondary school subject um, starting from 2008. Hmm. Um, So philosophy now has a presence in schools, Hmm. um, which it didn't have before. Uh, and um, it has it has a presence in in all but one of the Australian states Uh, and it's an interesting question for me why did philosophy um, why was it not part of the school curriculum Hmm. Um, but um, in any case what it has to offer is um, Training in constructive disagreement, mm. and recognition of the of the necessity for giving reasons, mm. and then of the um, <clears throat> the skill of n- neutrally um, evaluating the reasons, mm. Mm. rather than assuming the truth of some. Um, Mm. Favorable favorite favorite um, dogma from the start. Yeah. From the start, yeah. Um, but in order to get good at that, you have to practice it. You can't just be told, you know, do mm. this. So amongst people who've been advocates for philosophy as a school subject, mm. there's a thing that, that they call community. Of, I'm part of this too. Like we call community of inquiry. Yeah where um, you uh, you find a, maybe you do a reading, a small reading, and then you ask the group, so this is a group activity, um, what questions would you like to ask about this piece of reading? Mm. And then the students lead the, this can work from primary through um, to second, higher secondary, the students then lead the Set the agenda. These are the questions. Put them up on the blackboard. These are the five questions we would like to discuss. Uh, in the in the light of having her, her, um, read that story, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and then, as a group, you work together. Maybe we'll take question one. Now let's all pull our thoughts on question one, topic mm. one. Um, and this this, as a kind of teaching strategy, it's the best way to um, to make philosophy feel like normal, mm. um, rather than the teacher-led. Um, yeah. Now I'm going to you about this man and his ideas. Yeah, that's, right yeah, yeah, his that's ideas, right, yeah, you know, that's right, yeah. That just becomes history. Yeah, massive, that becomes it? history, yeah. yeah. So, uh, community of inquiry is the um, preferred pedagogy for Doing philosophy and mm. it's not really very different from how philosophy is done at university level mm. in tutorials. Um, Take a section. Yeah. Frame some questions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then get yeah. into yeah. No. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so I, that's why I think f- uh, philosophy has a, has some has something important to contribute because then mm. every student has has a say. Mm. Um, you kind of you go around the. This is different to debating, isn't it? It's different completely from debating. Yeah. And the nicest thing when you, when this becomes um, a normal practice is that kids who haven't spoken much, either because they're alienated from school or they're shy, whatever, um, are shown to be as reflective as anyone else. Mm. Uh, and they can come up with different and better ideas. Mm. And, and then you see a transformation of the group. Yeah. Um, and uh, this has social benefits too mm. for, um, for the functioning of schools. Um, so uh, there, this, goes, this goes back more than 50 years to um, a, uh, an American guy by the name of Matthew Lipman, mm. who obviously was very bright, um, became a lecturer at Columbia University and after a few years, he said, this is hopeless. These students don't know how to think. These are the brightest, you know, <laughs> the brightest and the best. But he said they hadn't been trained in how to to think or to present an argument. And he thought, well, by university, it's just too late. <laughs> so you have to go back to the younger. And then he spent his, the rest of his career um, Trying to find an appropriate curriculum for philosophy as a school subject, mm. and wrote um, textbooks that were designed for classroom use. Mm. Um, and when once he got that um, that uh, that program um, established, he brought it to Australia. Right and Australia has had a pretty um, significant role in the advancement of philosophy in schools. Mm. So we tend to think um, of Australia as not being very um, philosophical society, but actually we are um, Mm. both at the academic level and, and in some ways we're one of the leaders of philosophy in schools around the world, mm. um, but you, there's a long way to go. Yeah, and if you play that through, the, the more
0: kids have that constructive discussion mm. skill set, mm. as they age and mature, mm. that's only going to increase um, just the the level that we operate in society, and as
1: a mm. democracy, yeah. that's right. And what have you? Yeah, because um, a, a student who's learnt those sort of things um, mm. learns other things that go with it, which is when someone starts to try to dominate a discussion, mm. uh, they they should be comfortable to say, "So, what is your reason for saying that?" These sort of things, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just a yeah.
0: The thing <laughs> yeah. I guess the other thing that, um, as we get more versed in that, um, something something that I've been thinking about, particularly of the journey mm. that I've been through doing this, mm. is that um, you're creating... Sorry, take a step back. Because I found myself getting more and more trained in this mm. neutral assessment. Mm whereby I can mm-hmm. happily um, almost put large chunks of brain, mm. his thoughts, feelings, beliefs, values mm. to one side, mm-hmm. or just over here for a minute, yep. create space <coughs> yep. to let what you have to say come mm. in, and then I spend a day or so and see mm. which bits settle mm. and how they okay. settle, mm. I have this like, mm. When I, when I talk about this, I have this um, picture of leaves falling mm. with no breeze mm. to stop it, and then mm-hmm. just see mm. what's the mosaic, and then which bits of the mosaic stay with mm. me afterwards. Mm. And so it's, got, it's kind of a gentle thing. Mm. But one of the things I also find is that through creating the space where I know people there in good faith, um, I can trust them. I can trust the fact that they have the skill set mm. To interact, mm. then we create, then we create the um, conditions for emergent conversations, mm. where instead of it being just, you know, it's almost like the battle of wills, it's mm. like, oh, mm. oh, there's something interesting there. Yeah. I, mean, I I've sat at this table and had mm. conversations with people where the two of us have gone. Oh, do you feel mm, like mm, there's something there? And then mm, you can both together go off and mm, follow that thread. Mm, and it goes somewhere exciting. Mm, 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 and I can't help thinking that that's the place where we're going to find some of the answers mm, mm, to some of the biggest problems that we mm, face. Mm.
1: Yep. Learning to, learning to hold a discussion mm. or a conversation. Mm without um, without worrying about how what you say is going to be received. Yes. Um, and and then mm. it's mutual from the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the basis of friendship. Mm. Um, and I think it's the basis for a good
0: marriage. Mm. Um, and we races. know that we can both go pretty hard on each other yeah, with that's right, yeah. thoughts and yeah, ideas.
1: Because yeah, yeah. the foundation yeah. is. Well, yeah. it, if, if you treat each other's ideas with respect. Yes. Um, oh yeah, you're yeah. not, it's, that's a shit idea. Yeah. <laughs> and the same with children, um, because mm. they're, they're, they're part of the conversation too. Mm. Mm. Even quite small ones. How,
0: how is it for you as a person in the world, given the you know the level of thought and the lenses that you develop to look into the world, and then to see lack of capability when it comes to constructive discussions and constructive mm. disagreement, and and some of the stuff that we've talked mm. about here, mm. is is it hard? Does it frustrate you? <laughs> Do you sometimes sit there thinking? Mm. God's sake! If you guys just yeah,
1: well, I used uh, in in many ways the 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 people we focus on are politicians, mm. and I used to feel that sense of complete um, negative reaction because politicians almost never give you a reason for anything. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think I've become more um, more willing to see it as a role rather than a um, place where people are speaking from how they really feel. Um, right. So, so it's, it's the role that talks, not the person. It's the a person. role that talks, yeah. Not um, the person. Not the person, yeah. Mm. And occasionally when I've known uh, political people, yeah. uh, you learn that they are um, not what they seem in a good way. Mm. I'll give an example. I once heard um, Brendan Nelson, who's you know, a, a high-ranking politician for, for a period, but he came to a... Um, a conference event that i was at and he, he arrived at eight o'clock in the morning mm. and he was launching something and i think he saw straight away that the launching wasn't very interesting and so he just talked to us the, the conference people who were all from the humanities and social sciences mm. about the value of the humanities and social sciences and he was from a medical background and he'd been a politician and he did it better than i could have done Hmm. And probably better than anyone in the room could have done. <laughs> Right. Just off the top of his head. A yeah. head. So I ha- that was a, little, a lesson for me that um, he didn't seem to me a very impressive politician, but when I heard him speaking, I thought, oh no, my goodness, this like is An impressive human, yeah, being. Pre- impressive human being. Yeah, an hmm. impressive human being, yeah. So we were there to persuade uh, politicians that the humanities and social sciences should be taken more uh, seriously. And he did it back to us <laughs> right. he did your job for you. yeah, he did our job yeah yeah i wish i'd I wish I'd had a recording of what he said hm mm. anyway that's a that's only one instance you shouldn't generalize from mm. single single point examples yeah, yeah. but um uh, there aren't many politicians that you say, well, they are real, inspiring. People, Mm. but then you have to say, well, they're not quite. It's not really their job to be inspiring. Mm. Um, And after all, we had some terrible, but inspiring politicians in the 20th century, Mm. Um, and that's you know something you'd rather avoid. Mm. I don't mean Churchill. I mean, (laughs) yes. (laughs) I mean the other the other guy. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was. uh Certainly good at
0: mobilising. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it,
1: it terribly good.
0: Yeah. So um, the last question mm. I ask all my guests. It's a hypothetical one, mm. but it's going to be more fun because you're a philosopher, so you're all about questions. Is um, I ask this of all my guests is if I could just slow everyone down and um, so that Alan could load a question up into the collective consciousness for everyone just to have a little think about for five or ten minutes, Mm. what would that be?
1: Mm, it's a hard one Um, I think the question I would ask is um, What is it that you and we really value? Hmm. Um, I like April, the double part. Yeah, well, us in general. Yeah. Um, So. I think that's. um, I'm not sure why I I, I would ask. I would ask that question. Obviously, you put me on the spot. but the answer that people generally give when they are given time to think about it is that what they value most is their family, mm. um, and that's uh, that's one of the, it's a kind of established social science finding. Mm. Um, but um, I guess I guess there's all sorts of reasons for feeling. Um, that families are problematic Mm. but um, from a child's point of view they're pretty much indispensable so that's my personal point of view Mm. Um, and that's the that's the answer I'd give to your question myself yeah Mm. Mm. Certainly, for
0: me, it would be around connection. Mm. Yeah, solid, mm. genuine, trusting. Mm. Yeah, connection with others. Mm. Yep. So that includes you know, my relationship, my family,
1: mm. my friends. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and those yeah. around. Yeah, I think everyone thinks basically in that way. Well, almost everyone. That the, there are. There was a set of people who were close to you and then there's a little bit further and further. Mm. Um, and you value them all, but... Um, and that's because we are social. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's Which what, is it's, yeah. one of the things yeah, we yeah. started with. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, but we came from a, an aristocratic heritage mm. and that didn't really value um, family in quite the same way. Mm. Um, so it's one of the things about... Um, living in a prosperous modern world that we um, can also live rich family lives. Mm. Mm.
0: I've really enjoyed that conversation today. I have too. Good stuff. Um, if someone's watched this and they'd like to reach out, where can they find you?
1: I can. You can put my email address on the, All right. on or, the or message line. me, and I'll put. Your yeah, 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 yeah. Indeed,
0: Alan. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you.